Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 26. With me this time is Alan Williamson, editor-in-chief at 5 Out of 10 Magazine. Hello. And managing editor of 5 Out of 10 Magazine, as well as a PhD candidate at the University of Texas in Arts and Technology, Lindsay Joyce. Hello. So, tell us, Alan, how did 5 Out of 10 Magazine come about? Oh, this old chestnut. A story, a story changes every time, you know. <laughs> oh, so... The kind of genesis for it was a combination of things, really. It was the the writing and collaborative work I was doing with sites like Split Screen and Nightmare Mode. And it also kind of came out of a podcast that, that never was. And I've been chatting a bit to Bill Coberly, who used to be the editor of the Ontological Geek. And we're kind of chatting about, you know, lamenting the decline of games magazines and things. And I'd say, yeah, maybe, maybe we should just do our own. And... Um, I don't know if it's available now, but there's a, there was a blog post I wrote for Nightmare Mode, and it was called something Murder, Murder We Wrote, and it was about um, how free writing was killing paid journalism. Needless to say, this was very popular with journalists who were earning money, and very unpopular with free bloggers. Um, <laughs> but um, So kind of off the back of that, I've been thinking about um, what can we do to take what I thought was really, really high-quality amateur blogging and to monetize it, because I figured that this writing was as good as the stuff I was reading in professional magazines. So why shouldn't we turn that stuff and turn it into a professional magazine? And that is pretty much exactly what we did. And the people that were in the first issue were all kind of amateur bloggers becoming professionals. So the first issue we had Brendan Keogh, Lana Polanski, Chris Ligman, Bill Coberly, and myself. So that was the original gang of five. Um, And I guess the first issue was a kind of it was a bit of a, a punt, you know, that we hadn't done anything like that before. We were, I was kind of scared to see how it would turn out, to be honest with you. But it turned out okay. People seemed to enjoy it. And here we are, and we're approaching our three-year anniversary in November, which is pretty pretty shocking, to be honest with you. It's been, uh, it doesn't feel like three years. But I guess like it came out of things like Critical Distance, and the work we did there, obviously, I've been involved with critical distance for a couple of years now but doing that stuff like blogs of the round table and the this week in video game blogging you get an idea of well it's really quality writing that's out there and you also get an idea of how people are struggling to make an income from it and i think that you know five out of ten kind of gestated from that and you know perhaps if we hadn't have done something then something else would have sprung up instead of it but i'm kind of glad we got there when we did and how did that uh first issue come out well there was quite a lot of back work to do because we had to code a, a web store by hand because one of the things that we did the main three points the kind of holy trinity of things we wanted to do with the magazine are that we wanted it to be fair so we wanted people to get paid a proper amount we wanted it to be inclusive so we wanted to make sure that it always covered a wide range of backgrounds and that it was really good quality so for the fairness aspect we decided we were going to split all of our profits five ways between the contributors to the magazine so that's a good idea but then you have to think about how are you going to do that calculating? Is it going to be me sitting with a spreadsheet in my room? And so we were lucky enough to have a really talented web developer. He actually coded the whole store back end for us. We had to figure out, you know, should we use PayPal? Should we use Google Payment? Should we put it onto the iBook store and the Kindle store? What's the logo? What's the website like? Uh, what are the social media accounts? There's so many things that you have to factor in. And even now, whenever you release a new issue, there's you know quite there's, there's a lot of churn in terms of the things you have to do for the website and the social media marketing. But I announced it one week before it came out, and then we released it on a Saturday morning. And then I packed away all my things and moved house because that's the way I do things, you know. <laughs> you can't have can't have one thing in a day. And I remember uh, Marco, the web developer, was sending me loads of messages going, "Oh, we've got so many hits, we've got so many hits." And actually, whenever we launched the preview of the first issue, we had so much traffic that the server crashed. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to call the guys in Germany to restore access to it, which was pretty cool. So the first one came out in November 2012. For the second one that was out next January, I contacted writers to contribute to it. And then from that point, we started accepting freelance contributions. And then we just kind of kept it going from there. And how has the process of managing and editing it changed over these years? Oh, quite substantially, I guess. So initially it was just me more or less on my own and I was very lucky to have my friend Craig Wilson who I've worked with at Split Screen before who 
I know from back in the University of Edinburgh days when we used to do newspaper design. So he helped me out with the design and then he became the de facto design editor and then more formally the design editor on it. And my friend Robbie did a bit of the copy editing, just, you know, kind of offering us services for free. After probably about the first year and a bit, I'm trying to think. Yeah, probably the first year and a half, it became quite you know demanding for me to do all of the 5 out of 10 work because I was doing all of the commissioning, all of the editing, the copy editing, substantial part of the page design, and all the website stuff, and all the social media stuff. And I also somehow managed to write two features, which were usually finished about 4 o'clock in the morning, the day before it went to press. So that is way too much for one person to do. So we then hired a managing editor, um, and the first one was um, Caitlin Tremblay, who you'll hear from later in this podcast. And she was with us for a couple of issues. And then, unfortunately, due to other commitments, uh, she wasn't able to stay on. So at that point, I was like, well, I'm going to get completely burnt out if I keep doing this by myself. So we began a hiring process, which was a new thing. And the person we hired was... It was Lindsay. Yay. <laughs> um, and then, so she's been with us since, well, how long has it been now? A couple of months? Uh, yeah. So I was uh, on issue 12 and mm-hmm. 13. Yeah. So what well, issue 12 was out yeah, kind of beginning right. of March. Yeah. So you're, you've been with us from around January time then? Right. And how's been your experience with it? Oh, the experience is, is, has been great. Do you want me to take and... my take my headphones off while you guys discuss this? <laughs> <laughs> no, it really is. It's such. Even if Alan weren't on the line, I could say that it's been a really a really great experience. So even from just doing the interview process and getting to talk to Alan and Craig about what the job was and what it would be, it was sort of just easy conversation. Right? It didn't feel strained and. So it, there was a nice community feel from the beginning. And I also nicely stepped in when we sort of started editing in Quip, which has been a really nice sort of web platform to work in, keeps everything together. And just sort of seeing it come together from the back end and then getting to marvel at the final product has for the last two issues been really, really rewarding, right? Like I look forward to the day of launch as much as anyone, I think. Probably not quite as much as me, but I close (laughs) it. Well, but I think there's the interesting part where I'm dealing with, you know, the the text copy, but I don't get to do the the design work and rightly so, (laughs) but you know, it it would be terrible. But so I, I know the text, but then actually seeing how beautiful the actual magazine comes out with the design concept, just smoothly integrating with the actual articles is just lovely. That's my favorite part. I mean, yeah, I said I did a bit of the page layout, but, you know, credit where it's due. Craig does an amazing job on that, and he does it purely for the love of it. And he's always been very, very good at taking people's words and trying to find the best way for the design to support it. Because I think one of the things with online journalism is there's been a trend for more overly designed things. And I totally forget the name of the New York Times piece, but there was one about an avalanche somewhere in the Alps, and they used a lot of overtly visual information. One of the things I'm thinking of here is something like The Verge's review of the Apple Watch, which is this really probably overly designed day in the life of somebody wearing an Apple Watch, and it gets to the point where the design's actually getting in the way of the text you're trying to read. Um, right. And Craig is really, really good at striking that balance of making sure that the design serves the text but it never overwhelms it. And so we had stuff like Cameron Kunzelman did a piece in issue 10 about Metal Gear Solid. And so Craig laid it out like a Soliton radar system. Uh, he had these kind of you know, little boxes and codex screens to represent the quotes. And it was it got you into the world of Metal Gear and it evoked that nostalgia and the feeling of being in the game, but it didn't completely overwhelm you. We kind of joke that his current design trend is the little white box that he uses as a framing <laughs> device around things. That's the, that's the current Craig trope. So he does most of the design ideas, and he's always been very good for me to throw ideas off. And I don't think it would be anywhere near as good as it's been without his help. And he's also did the cover for the latest issue, which is uh, called Luck. So it's we Rainbow Road with the blue shell flying about it, which somebody said they were delighted about and infuriated at the same time whenever they saw that <laughs> image. 
but I think like we've got a we've got a really good team going now, and Lindsay's slotted into that very very well, and it's it's a really smooth process now. I certainly find it a lot less stressful than I used to, because it is stressful doing something to a tight deadline, making sure all the copy gets in and the design's coming together, and then as well as that managing aspect you're also thinking about the leadership aspect of things so you know where are we going to take this in six months it's not enough just to churn out issue after issue there's always this process of iteration and learning from your mistakes and trying to make the next issue better than the last one and not just better from a holistic design point of view but also better for the staff you know i don't want Lindsay to do two issues and then be like oh you hit this and i hate you goodbye you know you want you want, to, <laughs> you want it to be fun for everybody i think Part of that comes from you know, actually listening to what people are telling you. So we do a post-mortem after every issue now, and I'll say, how are we driving? Is this working? Is there anything we can improve? And I think all that kind of stuff is part of what is making it better, but also what makes it enjoyable is that I'm not a, a dictator, sadly. <laughs> no, but I think, too, there is – so it's not just the team for me either. At The team is great, but then getting to work with a group of five different voices, each issue is also really rewarding, right? And that for as long as they're there for that issue, they sort of collaborate alongside us as well. And there's always a, or has been a really good rapport, right? And that it would almost be fun at some point to sort of release some of the sideline comments that <laughs> yeah, get <yeah>. generated <laughs> <laughs> when we're talking about potential edits or, you know, just improving a piece. But sometimes it's just a stream of jokes that happen with the author and Always the jokes. editors as, yeah, as we go through. That makes it lighthearted. And I think it can be easier to accept edits when you know that the person, right, generally cares not only about the content, but about you as the writer, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I kind of see our role as editors in bringing people's ideas to fruition. And so whenever you're editing someone's piece, you're not just tidying up the copy. You're really trying to get at what's this person trying to say? And then is that thing that they're trying to say true? Like, is it is it true to them? Is it true to reality? And then you're trying to see, does that person succeed in getting that idea across? And if not, how do we help them get to that point? And that only works if you're having a two-way conversation with that writer. It can't just be, do this, do this, change this. It has to be, you know, it, it comes from a kind of a perspective of one of the comments I'll leave a lot of the time saying, I don't understand. And I'm kind of, I'm coming at that from the point of view of a, a naive reader, you know, somebody who doesn't know this writer, doesn't know this game, whatever topic it is they're trying to cover. But it's about getting understanding and also making sure that the writer understands what they're trying to say and that they're not potentially misleading people through those words. But we are good in that. It always kind of breaks my heart whenever you hear people say, and it happens quite a lot. You'll see people usually in a hidden Facebook thread that not the, the world can't see. They'll say, I had XYZ published on website Q and they've made loads of edits I didn't agree with. And they will cut out specific paragraphs or excise bits they particularly liked. Or or worst, worst of all is they don't understand your jokes and they change one of your puns. <laughs> the, the worst one I ever saw was, it's okay to talk about this because it was a long time ago, it was at the student newspaper in Edinburgh. And it was, I think it was a piece Craig wrote actually on The Force Unleashed. And he had written at the end of the game, this is not the game you're looking for. And the copy editor changed it to, this isn't the game you want. Oh, no. <laughs> and, I, and then and I remember like meeting him at the pub a couple of days later. And I said, I'm so sorry. <laughs> 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 totally, totally missed the point. And that's why we make sure the writers always get the final say. One of the nice things about Quip is that we can have this dialogue with them and we can leave comments. But they are always happy with the copy before it goes into the magazine. So they know exactly what's going in. Even on occasion, we have gone through the design with them. Um, one of them was Johnny Kittle Hefner did a piece, forget which issue, it was, it might have been eight or nine. He did a piece on representations of black characters in gaming. So Craig obviously used representations of black characters in gaming. But one of the things we were keen is not to turn those depictions into stereotypes in themselves. So we sent him the design press for it. And then he said, no, this is, this is totally fine. I really like this. But we got him to sign off on that as well. But I think that it comes from a, you know, a consideration and a respect for the writer. You need to respect what they're doing and know that just because 
you know, we've been doing it for a long time as, as editors. That doesn't mean we're, we necessarily knew everything. You know, we, we knew all of their intention behind them. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fun collaborative process. And if people have certain ideas for designs, we'll put them in. If they have their own screenshots, we always encourage people to take those. If, if they're talking, especially about personal experiences or characters and MMOs and their own games and things. So we try to get as much of their personality into it as possible. It's one of the other reasons why we do bios and mugshots at the front of the magazine is that I want to get that personality across in every issue. And that's what we put people's faces up front, you know, so you get a better idea of who they actually are. And they're not just a Twitter handle writing a blog into the void. These are real people and they are real stories. So we have, we have thought about this quite a lot. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything else you want to add on that, Lindsay? No, I, I think that's good. <laughs> I think you've, you've added on to what I said. Good. Beautifully. Good. Yeah, thank you. We're making a great team, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> so I take it the process has gotten easier over time thanks to momentum or experience? Oh, it's a bit of everything. It's a kind of, it's a, I would say it's a continuous process of refinement, but we have used technology to help us as well. So we are using this tool called Quip, and it is like Google Docs times a million. And I can see at a glance when I log in who has read what, who has commented, and what, what changes have been made. We have a chat room in Quip that is very similar to a Slack channel. And a lot of that technology helps me keep track of things, and it reduces a lot of the friction. So we're better at the processes. We're better at getting the copy in. The co- we used to get the copy in one month before publication, and now we get it in two months before publication, which is a way of saying we were down to the wire a bit a few times. But two months gives Craig and I time to read over the pieces for design ideas, get them going early in the process. And we have drastically refined the kind of templates we use. So the back half of the magazine is now mainly templated and we rejig it a bit. And then we add little bits and pieces. So we did the the Haywire special flux capacitor. And I finally figured out how to do pull quotes in a way that I didn't think was desperately ugly. So if you go to the new issue of 5 out of 10, we've got pull quotes, way. So, so, but it's, it's, it, the, Haywire, the Haywire one was good because, you know what, obviously Joe and I had it planned for a couple of months and Lindsay used to be, or sort of is, in flux, the, the managing editor of Haywire. And we had a good idea of what we wanted to do and I was keen to make something that wasn't just Haywire words slotted into a 5 out of 10 template. I didn't think that was going to be particularly respectful to the original design or the design of their website and what they intended. So what we did was took a 5 out of 10 template and then heavily modified it. And I think it's something that sits really nicely between the two. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm not going to lie. There have been times when we've struggled. And the fact that we slipped our deadlines you know, will easily suggest that we've struggled. And we always release things when they're done so they get pushed back. And, and life gets in the way. You know, I've got my own day job. Lindsay's got her own million day jobs of school and work and kids <laughs> and, and you know people get sick and there's all kinds of reasons why things don't go to plan but I think little by little we're, we're pulling it together I'm trying to get more organized and also I'm trying to delegate more it's one of the big problems is that I feel like I need to do everything myself and it's not because I don't trust people it's because I don't want to burden them with it so I'm basically getting better at giving Lindsay more things to do yeah, and I think one of the across the uh, the two issues, right? So the, the first that I was working on was just 100% learning experience, you know, just figuring out how everything worked. But it seems to me moving forward, right, is that there's this pattern where in one of the things I can do is step in to the next issue and start sort of doing some mm-hmm. initial edit as soon as they come in yeah. while Craig and Alan are doing the design really trying to get the deadline for the current issue met, right? So it's sort of, while they're working on making it gorgeous, I'm sort of working toward, like, I've already moved on, right? And now <laughs> I'm on the next issue, uh, starting to read through that copy and give feedback, which is actually what's on my docket for the rest of the day, right? So, Yeehaw! There, it's, yeah, a, it's, a, it's a rolling production <laughs> line. That's what it is. Right. But now we're in the weird situation where issue 13 came out and there are a couple of pieces there that I haven't fully sat down and read yet because and, that, and that's but that's great because we're it means we're able to split up the duties. And obviously I've looked through all of them and I've looked over the comments and things, but I haven't sat and analyzed them. So it means I can actually enjoy some of those pieces. Now. Right. But that's I think that's that, that's testament to it is that I don't 
it, yeah, it's not just been analyzed down to the to the fine detail. It gives me more time to do things like update the website and make things a little bit prettier and do more social media stuff. Like <laughs> desktop wallpapers, which yeah. Awesome. Well, they're, see, they're Craig's as well. Anything, anything that looks good, that's not me. Really isn't. I don't want anybody to listen to this podcast and take home that I am a design genius because that's anything that looks good is Craig. The only thing I did look good was the issue ten cover. That was me. Everything else was has been him. <laughs> Every piece you've read and thought looks a bit janky. That design's a bit phoned in. That was probably one of mine. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> At least it wasn't mine, right? Like, it would have been, like stick figures. Right? Like, I feel like making you do one now, just to comes <laughs> out since you've you've bigged it up as it's all going to be yeah, stick figures and crayons. I want to see you design one now. Well, and so my sister did the the cover of issue twelve, yeah. and so that sets like an unfair sort of precedent, right? That this is what what the Joyces can do, and it's not true at all. <laughs> it's what a Joyce can do. So yeah. <laughs> My design would be no good. I'll stick to sentences. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you're happy, that's the main thing. <laughs> now I'm realizing some of these, you've answered some of these questions just by going on and on. So, <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> I that thing Alan and I both are is for both, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 it was, yeah you, you were in Oxford last summer. Yes. Um, we, we've met up for the first time you're there for a conference. Uh, you know, whenever yeah. you, you know, if you meet up with somebody for the first time and you're like, you're not sure if you're going to have a good evening or <laughs> if it's just going to be really awkward. But now we just talk the whole time. It was, yeah, it was the two loudmouths from either side of the Atlantic coming together <laughs> and, and talking nonstop for a whole couple of evenings. It was good. Yes. Yes. And here on the other side, the perennial listener. That's right. Uh, yeah, everybody appreciates a good listener. It's going to be something we haven't answered. Uh, I guess. <laughs> Uh, describe the pitching process. Oh boy. Okay. Because <laughs> everybody's going to be oh, brilliant. Now I get to find out how to do this. So the way we do it, and I'm not always completely transparent about it, but I guess we may as well be upfront. So what we do is, um, about every few months or so, we put out a call for pitches through our mailing list and social media and website, and then we take in a whole pile of pitches, and then Lindsay and I sort of double blind assess them. So. We read them, we give them a score, uh, you know, bear in mind things like you want to make sure we've got a good mix of people in there. So we want to make sure the topics are relatively diverse and they're not all just more bloody pieces about Skyrim or Minecraft, uh, which are on the banned games list. Because <laughs> we have ones that have covered. I don't want to read any more essays about Spec Ops the line, you know, <laughs> it's been done and done. So we go through all of those and then we have a Skype chat and we go through them one at a time. And we read our notes that we've made, and they pretty much always agree, which is which is really handy. So I read through my thoughts. Lindsay agrees that those are the correct answers, and then we go through them based on whatever we think is the best until we fill up space. So we are currently full up until the end of 2015, and that's really good because we know who's writing, and it's good for the writers because they know what the deadlines are. But it also kind of sucks because you get people that you know want to write for you all the time we're very different to a blog or another website where people can pitch all the time whenever they want and we'll take things on we we can't do that and the reason we can't do that is because it's just too stressful so it is it's kind of a harsh system because people well sometimes people will miss out on the deadline it means that we're not able to do stuff that's just contemporary but i guess i like to think of it as slow journalism you know it's this term about you want to take a step back from current affairs, five out of ten doesn't do news. We don't do reviews. We did book reviews once, but we don't. We don't do game reviews. We're not really interested in chasing the puck, so to speak. We're more interested in features that you can read now, or you can read five, ten years from now. It'll still hopefully be relevant. So in that sense, that probably explains a bit more about the pitching process and why we do that. But I don't know, like Lindsay, do you? How do you find that compares to somewhere like Haywire? Well, I mean, Haywire is completely different. Well, first of all, I'm working on the established columns, or that's what I was doing at Haywire, rather than the features, which is still what the editor-in-chief handles. So with the columns, it's just we have one every Sunday. And so it's on a weekly basis, but what column comes out rolls, right? So each of the singular authors 
probably has one column per month. So for them, it's a little easier, right? They have to write one article a month versus in my position, I have to make sure that I'm looking at one article for each week. But five out of 10 for me is more is more akin to something like what I deal with in scholarly publishing. It is slower and there's a review process. And, you know, someone that I just had a class with, Dr. Roger Molina, is the editor-in-chief of the journal Leonardo, which is a fairly, one of the older academic journals. And they have a backlog, I believe, currently of three years so in comparison, we're doing really, really I don't, well. I don't feel so bad. Right? Right? Yeah, I feel pretty good about that. Yeah. Right. So, But they, they're constantly like they never turn it off. Right. They never say like we're not accepting we're not accepting any any ideas anymore. Like don't send us your abstracts. So they're constantly taking abstracts, but their backlog just grows and grows. Yeah. And I just imagine how frustrating that would be as an author to have to wait potentially five years to see something in print and wonder, gosh, how much has, have I changed in that period? And would I still even want to see that thing? You know, yeah, in Yeah, I mean, whenever I talk to editors from other websites or if I've ever pitched to people in the past, which has been known to happen, it's not just Vanity Press, um, <laughs> their inboxes are inundated. Right. It is not unusual to wait two to three weeks to hear back from somebody. Anybody who's emailed me will know that I get back to you anywhere between two and five minutes, depending on what kind of device I'm using. And I, I don't have an inbox. I keep it at zero. So I think that although our pitching process can seem a little cruel and regimented, it's better in that way because people know they're not just punting away into the dark. You know, they right. know that they get a definitive answer and we always give people feedback in their pitches if they want it as well. And that's one of these things that is really time-consuming. I don't know if people appreciate how long it actually takes to give feedback on you know, 20, 30 pitches. But it, it's worth doing because I know whenever I started in that space, that was the kind of feedback that I never got. And I'm always keen to, you know, to kind of be the change, if you like, and to do things that other people don't. And so I'm really, I'm really proud that we actually do give people feedback and we can tell people what we're looking for or why we didn't get in. And sometimes that's a case of we had two pieces that were very similar and we just thought you know, one of those pitches was better than the other. Um, and other times there's things where People just haven't haven't fundamentally justified their, their thesis in that way. That's why we do things like we got involved with the Good Games Writing Pitch Jam and I wrote the How to Pitch Guide. And then we also published, with the author's permission, three examples of really good pitches. And I think one was Oscar Strick's piece, Isolation, where he did a PowerPoint presentation. And I did say, don't send me a PowerPoint presentation. This worked once. Don't do it again. We also had uh, Zoya Street's piece on it was field men and field satires. It was not another one. It was either either issue eight or nine, issue eight, I think. And let me think. Uh, yeah, I think it was issue eight. Sorry. And, um, <laughs> and the other one was Meg Townsend Rutten's piece, the Aerith one from Final Fantasy VII. And that was actually this isn't a pot shot at Meg. That was one of the most difficult pieces we've ever had to publish, purely because. She was coming from an academic English PhD background, and it was about Final Fantasy VII, which is the most ludicrous lore. <laughs> and that's actually, that's, it's a really interesting case study on how to do good design. It serves the content. One of the problems we had was I didn't know who any of these characters were, and I was worried that people that read the magazine wouldn't either, because although Final Fantasy VII is a popular game, you can't assume that everybody's played it, right? So what we did was we made these little Final Fantasy conversation boxes and linked them up to the characters and then did brief descriptions of them. So it was a cheeky way to, one, get the characters in there, but also to describe them in a way that anybody could pick up that piece and, and read it. But yeah, we, we like helping people out with pitches and we like showing people what's good because it's not, you don't want it to be an elite club. I want people that have really good ideas to, to write for this magazine. And I particularly want people who might feel discouraged about writing to, to get involved with it. It's not, you know, it's like I, I want it to be as approachable as I can and that pitching process and the transparency behind how we pick pitches and the transparency behind the feedback and what makes a good pitch and how can people improve, those are all integral to that. Yeah. <laughs> so there. <laughs> In fact, one of the pieces I was curious about asking about was, I can't remember, I tried looking it up, but I couldn't remember which issue it was from or who wrote it, but it was one that was made like a graphic maze. 
Oh, that was uh, Elizabeth Simmons. Uh, oh, what was the name of it? Lost. It was called Lost. It was in issue seven. Yeah, that one was her writing about the dungeons of Lost Odyssey. Now, the obvious thing about Elizabeth Simmons is that she's first and foremost not really a writer. She is a illustrator. So she drew a maze comic that you could actually print out, and it would be a, a three by three grid of a maze, and you can follow the path of the maze around. And it was good because it looked obviously it looked really beautiful, and all the text was handwritten, but also it's quite disorienting. And that piece is all about being lost in a maze. And so with all these little paths weaving in and out, it's it's a really cool design. It's definitely one of my favorite designs. It is one of the ones in the Patreon Power Pack. So if you haven't read it and you would like to read it and you wouldn't like to give us money because you're mean, you can actually read that one for free. But it, it, no, it was it was a really, really cool design. And I think, I think, or it, I can't remember how that came about, but it might have, I think she might have pitched the piece as an essay. And I'd said, you know, why don't we, why don't we draw it out? I'm not sure if she came at it with the idea of a comic or not, so I don't want to claim too much credit for it. But either way, it was it was a really awesome piece. It was really and it was and it was great because it was something you could only really do in five out of ten. You could only do that in a magazine style, and it also works well in a PDF magazine because you can whiz back and forwards. Um, we didn't even put the text for that piece in the EPUB version because there was no point because it didn't we didn't it, it just wasn't the same experience. I noticed. That's why I, I started switching over to the PDF version. But you know, but you know, I you know I love you, and you know that I fixed the EPUB covers <laughs> for you after you said that it's worked. So, uh, we do we, well, we, we care about our EPUB readers. Yeah, well, I switched programs, and then the new one can actually use PDF, so EPUB. it all worked out in the end. EPUB is a nightmare. To digress for ten seconds, EPUB is not good <laughs> because well, when you think about a PDF, you think about the way we design five out of ten. It's all about that purity of design and making something that is, you know, down down to the micron, intricately designed, and exactly what we wanted. And EPUB is all about people being in control of the text. Yeah, I didn't realize that there were actual pictures in these articles until I switched to PDF. I think there are some people who have yeah read the EPUBs and then switched to PDF and be like, Jesus, look at this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, just, I just find that a little bit. You know, if you want to read it in a Kindle great it's they're, you know, they're really good devices but, well but kindle I, is moby it's the it was the free nook um like the oh, it, the open well, source mootness that made it better moby is just epub and a proprietary wrapper it's actually it's it's, uh, it's it's functionally equivalent it's not that different All right and i'll just end the, ner- the nerdy bit but whenever i've spent so long working on this pdf and you find that people are only just discovering it like jesus read the pdf please read it it looks really good we're you know we're really and, and that's why we've started like putting you know, put pictures in as well as the PDF preview. People can see how, how good it looks. Because um, one of the well, one of the ideas we had was trying to take the magazine onto the web and making it readable through the website as well. But it's just not the same thing, and it's not it's not it's not who we are. You know, I want as many people to read it as possible, and perhaps if we if we hit our Patreon funding goal, you know, then we could we could do that kind of thing and, and make it all available online. Hint, hint, hint. Give us some money. <laughs> But, you know, we, we're designing for PDF and EPUB. We think that's the best experience. And we want to make something that people kind of have to invest a little bit in. You know, something you have to download. And, and we want we don't want you to to breeze through this thing in your lunch break. I want you to sit down with like a, a cup of coffee and, and the, the biscuit or bun of your choice and, and sit down and enjoy it. Because that's the way I want to, to read and appreciate magazines. So it should be it should feel special. You know, it shouldn't just feel like every other website. It should feel like something people have really invested into and something that you you as a reader really love have you thought about print versions oh yes or making that option available for those who want it so the only print thing we've ever done was escape the nepali and it is print on demand I, some people don't know that but it is you can do it you can do it and not that i don't mean print on demand you know print print on your printer somebody else <laughs> print it for you and, and send it to your house one of the issues with doing that is that well first of all there's an extra layer of complication because you're having to design for print. You have to take into account things like bleeds, margins, ink levels that we don't have to worry about for digital because it's a kind of a, a WYSIWYG type thing in InDesign. You don't have to worry about, you know, are these pages going to fall apart because they're saturated with so much ink? You have to think about the size of the text more. So with Escape to Nepali, I was trying to do a lot of proofs on my iPad to get an idea for how that text was going to look. I was having to do proof prints of some of the pictures to check if they turned out okay. There's a lot more to consider. The other thing is that any design you do is, is going to be a compromise. 
So if we start doing it for print, you either have to do a really outstanding version for print that won't look quite as good in PDF, or you do both. You know, you have a separate PDF one and a separate print version that we send to the printers. Then once you've done that, you need now to think about distribution because you don't need to worry about that through a website. The distribution is, up, you know, I upload it to Dropbox, Marco puts it on the site, and away we go. So now you have to think about how are you going to print that? Are people going to print it themselves through, uh, what do you call it, you know, the HP Mag Cloud kind of things or Blurb? If people order those, how do we get that money to the contributors? What kind of cut do they take? Am I going to have to sell it at conventions? Do I now have 200 magazines in the corner of my room laughing at me for my <laughs> failure and anticipating the sales? So there's a lot to take in there. And I think that as much as I would like, I, 5 out of 10 came out of a love for print magazines that I grew up reading in the 90s. Would I love to have a print copy on the shelf? Absolutely. But it needs to be right and it needs to be true to us. What I could see us doing would be some kind of print compilation of some of the best articles. Sort of, yeah, yeah, like a greatest hits type thing. And then something that Craig and I would sit down and properly refactor for print. That would be the only way I'd, I'd see it happening. Escape to Nepali was okay because it was a book and we didn't have the same intensity of design. So it was kind of one template ten times, if you like. But it was it was built from the, the ground up. But all the stuff like, you know, even when uh, we did a proof print of that and Caitlin got that and the... The text on the spine was about two millimeters out of line because I had no way of seeing the dust jacket. And so before we, we made it available to the public, I had to go into the InDesign file and, you know, nudge it down and resubmit the whole thing. And things like that, where if you do a print run of five out of ten and then, you know, yeah, you fluff up some of your, your page dimensions, it could be a complete disaster. There are a couple of interesting things I'm working on. There's one, there's one project that I don't want to, I don't want to talk about because I'm not sure if it'll happen, but it is a print thing of sorts. But in terms of a 5 out of 10 collection, yes, I know people want it. I want it too. Sorry, we've not done it yet. But I think, yeah, if it was anything, it would be a best of. But certainly for the next few months, at least until the end of the year, I want to make sure that the, the magazine's as good as it can be. And I'm more concerned with expanding our audience, getting people to back the Patreon in particular, which is becoming a, a really good way to generate revenue for it. I'm more concerned with getting money for our contributors be getting the word out there. There's still so many people that have never heard of it. And, you know, that's, I can only be taken as a, as a failure on my part. I want to work on those things first, because I think that if we did print as well, we'd be at risk of spreading ourselves too thin. So that well, in the it. meantime, too, yeah. right, there are, you can at least get the cover art. You can yeah, print you those. can. You can. We've got the Society6 print store. I've got a couple of prints in my room. Wee. Which is a perfect segue into my question of every single publication thing whenever, I've done, whenever, cover design. Whenever you say a perfect segue, you've ruined the segue. <laughs> you realize that? You've telegraphed the segue. But, that is, but that's how you do segues on podcasts. You mention that it's a segue. It's a segue. Yeah, about your cover designs. They're probably some of the best I've seen. Oh, thank you. Partially because they're all different. There isn't a single unified art style between them. Oh, yeah, they're all over the place. Because <laughs> from a dis, like the first one from a distance could have been a screenshot from Journey with like some color corrections in the first, sky. The first one actually is is a screenshot. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. We didn't have any budget. Instead, so. so, yeah, it could have been because that's what it was. And then you get like some like inventive abstract stuff like uh, you, your subway map of various game worlds. Oh yeah, the so the the issue two cover was based on a Tokyo subway map. It's actually the layout of the Tokyo Metro, which I have artistically interpreted by manipulating the lines to make them look better. A bit like whenever Apple painted out stars for their desktop wallpapers. It was a, it was a roll your own. A kind of little known fact of that is that each of the different coloured lines corresponds to a different console manufacturer. And this is the level of ridiculous detail it went into it. Is where the lines meet is a cross-platform title. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, we thought... I remember you had a contest if anyone could get get all the details in these. Did anyone ever win that? Yeah, my brother did. <laughs> <laughs> so he told me them all. And then he went on to draw the cover for issue three, Segway. So yeah, that's like crayon <laughs> expressionist sort of thing. It was done. In, it was done in pastels. I I wrote about it for the. We made some special wallpapers for our Patreon backers, and the issue three one. It's an A three pastel drawing, and it was based on. Well, I, I said to Paul, you know, this idea of reflecting reality, and we talked a bit about fable, and so he drew an interpretation based, kind of loosely based in the fable two box, and you'll see the influence there. 
So it's maybe this idea of kind of two different heroes in the Xbox controller. So he did that in A3. He shipped it in a tube to Oxford where I scanned it on this ridiculous, like, you know, 600 DPI university scanner. And the, the, I think the file for it was like, it's like a 300 megabyte Photoshop file. So that was that. Issue 4 was actually a bit of, issue 4 was a bit of concept art for a Final Fantasy game. Um, and it's one of the ones where, it was one of the last ones, it was the last one we've done where it wasn't a piece of original artwork. Partly because the magazine got a bit bigger and we, you know, got a bit more collide. Issue five is actually a profile of my own face. <laughs> uh, no, I, yeah, I took. I can I took, see that now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can see the outline of the hair because I hadn't had a cut in a while. So, the, mm. so the issue five one, it was all drawn by me. So I drew the Pac-Man maze. It was all hand done. Issue six was by Dominic Johan. It was who he's gone on to do art for all kinds of things. He does a bit of indie game stuff now. It's actually it's quite striking. Oh, the, have, like, this is the Mario abs- Mario and Peach one. Yeah, it's really beautiful. It's really really good. Very abstract with straight lines, sort brighter. I guess of like a brighter version of like the Soviet art style. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's got a kind of like propaganda postery feel to it. Yeah, but we when we try to let writers do whatever they want, we give them a bit of minimal direction and then away we go. Issue seven because Elizabeth Simmons was contributing, she drew the cover, which is the really nice Chun Li one with the really uh, nice pencil art. Yeah, really good pencil art, and she she hand wrote the title because we were trying to superimpose the logo over, and I I just said, do you want to just could you just draw this? I think it would look better if you wrote it. And I think it turned out really well. Issue, yeah, I didn't notice that. So issue eight was Space, and that was Christos Reed, my friend who he does pixel art stuff, and he's a game developer. He drew this really nice Samus cover that I find is quite a peaceful one. It's not as energetic as some of those. It's a bit more tranquil and subdued. I think it's because of the zero-point perspective, yeah. where it's really flattened out, even though that there is supposedly depth. Yeah, but there's also that kind of... Samus is like lying on the top of her ship, just kind of staring at yeah. the space. I really, I really like that one. Issue nine was Time, and it was designed by my friend Trevor White. He's actually one of my oldest friends. He is an illustrator who's worked with people like Mind Candy in the past, who you might know through Moshi Monsters. So he, he'd worked with them, and he drew this Zelda cover that he doesn't like anymore. He thinks it looks creepy. He thinks that the eyes look really creepy, but I like, <laughs> I like the creep. I like the creep. I don't think it looked creepy. I just thought it's very striking, very beautiful. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really good one. Like I've got a, I've got a, I'm gonna get a print of it from my wall, but it is gonna creep out people that come to the house, and so, <laughs> so it should, should feel fair. Issue ten is the, the Tetris heart, which is one I drew myself, and the the secret story to that is that I actually played a game of Tetris, and every time I got a piece in the game, I put a piece into the heart. And then about three quarters of the way in, it no longer fit the pattern, so I cheated. But there was the intention to, to make it through Tetris. <laughs> But that one we actually whipped up really quickly because we'd had a problem with, we, we'd commissioned cover art, we had an issue with it, and we had to move it into a different part of the magazine. It's in the cover of Caitlin's piece in Fire Emblem. Number 11 was Soul, um, and we had um, Emily Majarian to the cover for it, and it's really beautiful. It's like, oh, it's, why was it? I, I'm trying to think. We talked about doing a Cortana cover because each of the covers for the second year is based on a woman in video games. So that's why you have you sort of have Peach on the cover of Mario and Six. Then you have got Chun Li, Samus, Zelda, and Sheik. And the tenth one was going to be oh, forget the name, uh, Lucina from Fire Emblem. That was going to be the cover design for number ten. So for number eleven, um, we we thought of doing Cortana. But then, long story short, Cortana is a Microsoft property, and we can't get away with drawing a cover. And we want this was the first cover for the web store, so we wanted something we could sell. So I just said. Do whatever you like, <laughs> and, uh, and, and and the rest is as the cover's called Soul. Do what you want, and then we end up with this. We had a bit of a problem with the email correspondence, and so it just turned up in my inbox. And she said, "You know, what do you think?" And I was like, "It's beautiful. Oh, oh it's perfect. <laughs> it was just, it's kind of game fully formed. It was incredible." Uh, but it's one of the ones I've, I've got got on the wall. Uh, issue twelve was uh, Rachel Lindsay's sister, and that one the pitch for that was it's about the future. So I was thinking of Blade Runner. So that's why there's a robot sheep. That's why there are two, like, two electric sheep, absolutely. And people, love <laughs> and, and people love that one, and I loved it as well. And it's got this, it's got this montage collage effect to it that's totally different. And I, and I love the, the vibrancy of the, the orange and stuff. It's really good. And then issue 13, we, for some reason, Craig, in spite of all his design stuff, had never done a cover. So I said, would you like to do a cover? And he did, and I really like it. It's a, as we abstract Rainbow Road thing. It's a very... It's very Craig's thing because it's a unique perspective and something we're all very familiar with. So there you go. That is every single cover we've ever done, which proves that I remember them all. 
<laughs> so far. Bravo. Yeah. Bravo. Nice. Yay. Yeah. Like, can I can I applaud over the mic? Does that translate? <laughs> yeah. It's like it's a, it's a, that's a good test. Me being drunk in the pub get me to name all the covers in order. So I <laughs> But what happens if you fail, right? Do you have to buy the round if you fail? Let's decide that next time. All right. I was going to say, I'm going to hold you to this. Okay. (laughs) A trip trip to Texas. I'll buy buy everybody a ride if I don't get them all. In a cowboy hat. (laughs) But but one of the things is like, there's always this, you know, the old old cliche about don't judge a book by its cover. Uh, But people get really excited about the cover art. And you think whenever you do a digital magazine that something that's not sitting on the shelf in a newsagent's you might think that the design doesn't matter. It really does. Cover art is so important. The cover art is one of the things that gets people excited about the magazine and it, it frames the whole thing. It influences how we design the back half of the magazine, you know? The cover art is way more important than you think. And, you know, whenever you go on these social media courses about a hashtag boost your hashtag brand, hashtag social, if you put a picture on Facebook, on your Facebook page, it will be engaged with and shared far more than a text post or a link to, like a call to action, you know, kind of a link to buy something, which is why if you go to the 5 out of 10 Twitter feed, it's mostly pictures, because people really like pictures, and we really like sharing them, so that's why there's so many of them. We have a, we have a hashtag SEO for you there. <laughs> <laughs> and Lindsay, you said you're never going to take up on the cover? Oh, gosh. No, now I feel like I have to, right? Like, I've uh, <laughs> we will see. I do have the artwork that I am capable of and that I do it mostly looks like really intricate, like 70s style coloring book. Like if you imagine like <laughs> buying like a uh, Scooby-Doo coloring book in the <laughs> 70s, that's like, that's all me, right? That's my style. <laughs> I think that sounds excellent. I would love to do it. Like, because if, if somebody said to me, oh, what's the new cover like? I would say, it's like a 1970 <laughs> Scooby-Doo coloring book. And they would just look at it and go, All right, fair enough. You've... <laughs> now you have my attention. Okay, I'll see Before what I... you had my attention, now you have my interest. <laughs> um, but I think like one thing we have never done for a cover is photography, which is interesting because I take so many photos and most of my you know, my main artistic thing, apart from writing, is taking photography. So that might be a potential venue. It's just a really nice... And some of the features, I know for a piece called Get Well in issue 10, uh, I did... I used my own photography for that out on it. And yeah, we've never had a, a photo cover before. So that might be something to do in future. But one thing I should tell you about, because you won't know about this, but it's worth mentioning, is that last week I did a live reading of one of the pieces in 5 out of 10 for the first time, which was pretty scary. Because whenever you put things out there, you're not too bothered about You expect that some people will hate you, but you also expect that a lot of people won't pay attention to it. So what could be worse than getting up on stage in front of 70 people with the, the fear of them becoming apathetic? You know, just not, not laughing at your jokes. <laughs> um, <laughs> the good news is it went pretty well. People did laugh when they were meant to laugh. But we, what I did was I took the original photography that I'd used in the piece design and put it up on a projector behind me, mixed in a couple of video clips and things. And it, it was cool because it was a way to, you know, expand the audience. And I think like the the one thing that I feel sad about with 5 out of 10 is that because it's behind a paywall, people can't easily read it. I would love everybody to be able to read it for free and to share it with everybody for free. But, you know, then it does raise the question of how we're going to pay people. So it's really nice to be able to share pieces with people that they haven't read before and to give them an idea of what we're all about. And, and that's what I really enjoyed about giving that live talk. But there is no good way, unless, wait for the sales pitch, unless you all back the Patreon and we reach our milestone goal of $2,000, then we can make it free for everybody. That's why we're doing it. That's the, the, the overall goal is to make the magazine free by relying on people's generosity. Because I think, I wonder how sustainable... Well, okay, so... To be perfectly frank, selling magazines for £2.50 a time online is, is always going to be doomed to failure. You're never going to reach critical mass and you're not going to be able to pay people what they want. That model is just not going to work whenever there's a huge amount of stuff available for free. And that is mainly the reason why we're going this crowdfunding option to try and move away from that and to build something more sustainable. And it's been very successful so far. So there you go. Surprise! The Patreon's, the Patreon's not just a, a, a brand new way to get hold of it. It really is It really is the future, and, and in that sense, it is a kind of do-or-die thing that it needs to be successful in order to 
you know, to sustain the magazine going forward. We shouldn't end that's on a sad great. note. We shouldn't end. <laughs> oh no, that's why we. That's why we always have the fluff question. Gonna take it outside and kill it. Give us some money. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lindsay. Yes. Ending on a rather happier note. What is your favorite video game of all time? Oh, oh no. Um, no <laughs> this, is, this is a question. Oh, okay. This is an unfair question that was also asked when I interviewed for 5 out of 10. <laughs> I, I, I asked what your favorite 5 out of 10 piece was. And, what. and I could answer that. I could answer that. But I fundamentally avoid favorites because for me, like, I don't, I don't know. It depends on the day, right? Uh, it really depends on the day or like what criteria. Is it my favorite game with, I don't know. Is it my favorite game with blue aliens or is it like my favorite game <laughs> with Right, like I need a qualifier. Can you? Can well, it's it's <laughs> May third. What is your favorite video game on May third? All right, I'm just going to cheat a little here and say probably right now because I've spent so much time with it, and it's part of my dissertation, and I've written about it. It's in flux capacitor. It would be Kentucky Route Zero or Kentucky Route Zero, depending on where you live. <laughs> so. Never even thought of it, then. <laughs> so, but I would say Kentucky Route Zero, uh, simply because of the amount of time that I've spent with it, and for nostalgia purposes, because I grew up in Appalachia with bluegrass. So the game just makes a lot of sense to me uh, aesthetically. Wait, wait, how did you how did you pronounce that? Appalachia is how Good you say Lord. it if you're from there, <laughs> not Appalachia. Is that how you say it? That's how we say it in Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> That's why and you don't get to go there. <laughs> no, we got we got Appalachian Mountains coming through us. It's, it's Appalachia. They're coming um, Appalachia. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you're from there, how do you, how do you say okay the the city where the Kentucky Derby just was yesterday? How do you say that? I don't actually know the city. Well, most people say Louisville, and it's wrong. Is it <laughs> like, Louisville? No, it's Louisville. Well, no, that's just that's totally ridiculous. That's just <laughs> I'm, you, I'm that's just you saying Louisville one. faster. No, it's, that's it's just Louisville. that's just Irishing up the place names. <laughs> <laughs> From who? Oh, hi. Do you know Joe? No. <laughs> uh, He's from Louisville. <laughs> well, now that you mention it, the Irish dialect is the predominant dialect of Appalachia. Its influences are strong. <laughs> just like just like Irish in The Departed. I'm Irish. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not at all. Boston Irish. Anyway, I'm going to say Kentucky Route Zero, but you can ask me again tomorrow, and it'll be different. Still a good answer. Thanks. <laughs> Sorry, I took a bit of a dive there. It went there. Uh... It went a bit. It went a bit critical distance. Christmas party at the end there. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you start when we start poking everyone's pronunciation. Just a, it's better fun. Make American. I get it. I get it. We can't make fun of the silly ways people pronounce things. What can we make fun of? How they spell things. You and your use and color and flavor and aluminium. Can I tell the I've, story, I've... Alan? <laughs> oh, story, story. This was, okay, so part of the learning curve for me is picking up <laughs> UK spelling. And so it was in 13, right? So Bill Coberly, like, submits his copy, and I'm looking at it, and he's writing about the lining of Isaac. Mm-hmm, yep. And so <laughs> I'm looking at it, and it keeps, I've never played the game, right? And it keeps saying, from, from my perspective, FOTUS. Right, as in F O E like foe. It is your foe, and I was like, was this a really clever way to talk about like an evil baby enemy? Right, it's 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 your foe, but it's a fetus. Oh, I remember I was dying whenever I read that. It was so funny. Like Alan, and I'm like, look. Just clarify for me. And I was really just asking if I needed to capitalize it, right? Is this like a proper name in the game? And he's like, that's how we spell it <laughs> over here. Just says, why, would you, why would you capitalize fetus? And you're like, oh. <laughs> so now I'm just like, that is the perfect, perfect way to say fetus. I'm just like, it's a bodice. It's, it's 
it's this evil thing growing inside of you. So, yeah, they they should have okay. called that. They should definitely should have called the bad guy in Super Meat Boy Doctor Doctor Fotis. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really giving him a little more credit for being clever. Than... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, derailed us again. Now, but... now I feel like I should ask you other niggling questions of copy <laughs> editing, just because for the entertaining. That's well, I have redemption. Yeah. I was gonna say I also had redemption in thirteen on the piece about NBA Jam, right? Or NBA 2K, the new NBA game, right? That Paul King Mm -hmm. wrote. And so that was just full of Americanisms, right? And so the rest of, like, Robbie and Craig and Alan are just like, what? Right? And I'm like, yes, vindication. I know what bleachers are. It's like... like why why is he using bleach? What's he trying to clean? Wait a minute, what do you call them? I don't know, seats or something? I don't know. Well, well, I don't even know what bleachers are. <laughs> I'll, I'll call it like I see it. <laughs> okay, uh, quickest way to start a fight among vi- video game writers and editors. One word or two? That's one word. <laughs> it's one word, and if anybody writes just two words, I can do a find and replace, so don't waste your time trying to make a statement. Um, they, they, <laughs> No, the, the reason the reason it's one word it was based on a conversation I had with uh, Brendan Keel and a few other people. And the reason we do it that way is to because we're trying to treat it as a distinct medium. And the fact that video games one word is different from video games two words because video games two words to me implies a subset of games like board games or role playing games and things like that. Whereas the the video games that we know and love and occasionally hate um, can be very different. You can have something like you know, you can have everything from your kind of Mario's and Sonic's and your Mario parties, things that have rules and states. And then you have something like uh, Kentucky Route Zero or Gone Home, which is totally different. So the idea behind smashing the two words together is, is to sort of respect the heritage of where video games come from, but also to treat it as its own distinct thing. And that is the reason why we use one word. I will inform comic books that they're doing it wrong. <laughs> well, you can call those comics. You can call those comics. And there's still books because a books is a physical. There, this is getting this is out of hand. So this, should we call them videos instead? Well, I I suggested calling them digics, which is a portmanteau of <laughs> digital plus fiction because they're always digital and they're always fiction. And it will come as no surprise to know that that was universally reviled. Uh, <laughs> so we're stuck with video games. I guess the other way to start one is Oxford comma or no, but no, that's, that's too uh, pedantic. Yes, yes, yes. You, Alan, and I will have words later. It was the what was the um? There's one going round about Oxford commas. It's about you know your friends included Nelson Mandela and an 85 year old and a dildo collector. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but the, the problem with though the uh, and the the quick retort was those are shittily written sentences to begin with because you have to end the list with the plural. You don't begin a list with a plural and have everything singular afterwards. I think I think like a lot of those grammatical rules are. They're, they're they're there to be broken by the best writers in a sense. That's where my my favorite book on style guides and stuff is uh, Stephen Pinker's The Sense of Style, which is very good because he's coming at it from a psycholinguistic perspective of what makes sense. And ultimately, you know, whenever we're doing any of our editing, it's always what makes sense. Um, but yeah, we do like the Oxford comma. I don't know. I just it I, it just it just feels right. And sometimes that is all the reason you need to do something. <laughs> <laughs> it just looks hideous to me every single time I see it. I love the Oxford comma. Yeah, well. Oh, come on. <laughs> just, if you if you ever pitch to us, just prepare yourself. <laughs> prepare prepare for the Oxford comma. It's coming at you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I will avoid lists whenever possible. It's coming at you like a big type, typographic boomerang. Hey, just so you know, I can create sentences just to screw with you. So every time you try to insert the comma, no, no, Alan, I meant it the other way. Well, do you want do you want your pitch to be accepted in light of what you just told me? <laughs> hey, Alan, uh, do you remember that time I threatened to sabotage your magazine on, on the podcast? Yeah, how's it about it? How's it about let me write for you? Hmm, okay. okay, cheers, buddy. Looking forward looking forward to this. Well, thank you both for being on, uh, editor in chief of Five Out of Ten, Alan Williamson. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Thank you. And the current managing editor of Five Out of Ten, Lindsay Joyce. Thanks a lot. Thank you both. It's been a blast.
Hello, CD listeners. We've come to the point in this album where those listening on cassette or records will have to stand up or sit down and turn over the record or tape. In fairness to those listeners, we'll now take a few seconds before we begin side two. Thank you. Here's side two. <laughs> 